We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Just after the midterm elections four years ago, President Trump met with reporters in the East Room. April Ryan, then Washington Bureau Chief for American Urban Radio Networks, tried to ask a question. Well, I'll give you voters. I, I will give you voter suppression. You just have to sit down, please. Sit down. I didn't call you. I didn't call you. I didn't call you. I'll give you voter suppression. Take a look at the CNN polls, how inaccurate they were. That's called voter suppression. Go thank, ahead, please. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not responding. I'm responding to... Excuse me, I'm not responding to you. I'm talking to this gentleman. Would you please sit down? Would, excuse me. Excuse me. Would you please sit down? Please, go ahead. Thank you, Mr. President. Now that the, uh, now that the House of Representatives Very hostile. Has uh, it's such a hostile media. It's so sad. You ask me about... No, you rudely interrupted him. You rudely interrupted him. For 25 years, April Ryan has covered urban issues from the White House press room, and for almost all that time, she's been the only black female reporter in the room. She's the Washington bureau chief for the African-American news site The Grio, and is a frequent political commentator on CNN. A Baltimorean and proud graduate of Morgan State University, Ryan already has published three books, and her latest is Black Women Will Save the World, an Anthem. Ryan calls her book, quote, a love letter to black women everywhere, close quote. When we spoke in October, I asked her if the subtitle, an anthem, and her statement in the title that black women will save the world are poetry or prediction. Hmm. It can't be prediction because it's happened. It is happening. And I guess the prediction part is that it will continue to happen or it will happen. Anthem means we say it over and over and over again. Black women will save the world. Um, my love letter to America is to let people know and to let America know how special and wonderful these women are. We're called upon in extreme circumstances. We're called upon in the most mundane, but we're called upon and we answer. And we come up into a moment and show up and make the extraordinary look ordinary. We show up, we are used to lifting heavy weights. We have to do it. If we don't, we lose ourselves, we lose our community. We are the glue to so much. We're more than the glue just to our house, our church house, our schoolhouse. We are the glue to now government. We are the glue to the community. We are the glue that keeps it going. And you don't have to look too far. Can you say Kamala Harris? Can you say Kataji Brown Jackson? Can you say Karine Jean-Pierre? Can you say Shalanda Young? So many people, can you say Keisha Lance Bottoms? Can you say Stacey Abrams? So many people in this moment happen to be black women who are moving the ball forward for the betterment of society, for the betterment of government, for the betterment of democracy. I tracked down that 2018 exchange between you and President Trump because it mm. seems like clear evidence of a recurrent theme in your book that the talents and achievements of black women are often discounted. In what ways? Well, first of all, Sheila, I cannot believe it's been four years since that happened. And it's so ironic. I was asking the president off mic about issues of voter suppression. And look at where we are today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when black women are discounted, when they rise up, when they stand in position of power, 
anyone in in a position of power is somewhat chastised, somewhat questioned, but when it happens to be a black woman, there is a whole different dynamic. I'm going to give you one example uh, that I'll never forget in my interviews uh, during the interviews for the book. Uh, Tisha Lance Bottoms, then mayor of Atlanta, she saved Joe Biden's run for the White House right after then presidential candidate Kamala Harris uh, questioned Joe Biden about his stance on busing. This woman is now once again saving the Biden administration by coming in and working for the Biden administration, helping them uh, lift their numbers. Uh, But when she was mayor, there were people who questioned her abilities. And it was very insulting for the average person. For a black woman, you know, it's unfortunate this is what we have to deal with. For instance, she would make decisions in one of the in one of the largest economies in the nation, make decisions in in a city that has a large number of Fortune 500 companies. But yet, when she would make a decision, someone would say, "Who told you that?" Like she couldn't think for herself. Also, when black women show up in a room of high-powered people, there's something. Sometimes we wonder, "How did we get here?" Other other women don't do that. Other men don't do that. How did we get here after we were the ones uh, that are haunted with the legacy of slavery? We are the ones who have been told, like Keisha Lance Bottoms, who gave you that idea? So we have to remember, these are women who show up with a history that haunts us from so many issues, like Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to run for president in 1972 on the Democratic side. She said, For black women, there's a double whammy, being black and a woman. And she also said, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Now we build the tables. We build the chairs. We also convene the tables. But the problem is there is a haunting. When we show up, we wear the mask. You know, we belong in the room, but we have to to believe more in ourselves to be there. You write about death threats. One in particular that arrived at your home in Baltimore. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, here's the issue. And you played one example of heat from a president onto a reporter. And unfortunately, during those times, uh, many people felt that, uh, you know, I had no right asking what I did. But people didn't understand the the dance, the the rhythmic dance that our founding fathers put in place for reporters and presidents. And I was doing what I was supposed to being free and independent press, asking a question of a president of the United States, the fourth estate. Um, there are some people, you know, from the very beginning, when um, then President Trump came into the White House, felt that I was a problem for him. They listened to him. Um, and I received uh, one of those Caesar, Caesar Sayak bombs um, before anyone else did. Um, you know, I've had the bomb squad at my home. I've had to move my home. And I had to do this all trying to keep my family safe, my kids happy, and me with a job just to keep moving forward in shock and awe, 
still doing the work and all of this is happening. There was a price to pay for that. Um, and now, you know, I am in therapy for it, but there was a tremendous price to pay for that. You know, just for asking questions. But Sheila, you have to remember, I did nothing but just ask a question of a president of the United States. And for asking, I got a target on my back. You have a daughter in grade school and one in high school. How do, how do you talk to them about these risks? Or, or do you? <laughs> I wrote a book about it uh, at Mama's Knee uh, about race and about hate. It's hard. You have to be honest, but you also have to give them hope and let them know that they're safe. Safety is important. And that's one of the things that I wanted to make sure that they were safe at all times, no matter what happened. Um, it's a hard conversation, but they have to feel that they are safe, most importantly, and that they can hang out with their friends and nothing has changed. Even though you're in the background making sure they're safe, you know, making sure, oh, is this the right school that you need to go to? Because if there's someone that finds out you're my daughter, you know, you have to do all of these things in the background, but just letting them know that they're safe along the way. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass, speaking with April Ryan. Since 1996, the only black woman covering urban issues from the White House press room. We're talking about her new book, Black Women Will Save the World, an anthem. You title one chapter in the book, Walking the Tightrope. What is the tightrope? <laughs> what is the tightrope? The tightrope is understanding intrinsically who you are. But yet, going out there, doing what you have to do, and questioning, am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I capable enough? But still doing it. There's a tightrope when you are the one who lifts everyone. I'm lifting my family up while I'm working. You know, we have it different than our, our, our other gender counterparts, particularly men. We have to continue to hold the house up while we are working we have to make sure the kids are okay, but we have to make sure our jobs are straight so we can continue to contribute. And also at the same time, black women are rising in numbers, head of households and the breadwinner. We have to do all of this while we're still working on the job, keeping the community together, keeping the schoolhouse and the church house together. It is a tightrope and there's no other group that is able to do it as successfully and skillfully as people who have not been given what they should have to dig themselves out. We've been given a spoon compared to those who've been given a shovel to dig out. That's the tightrope. You write with passion about the pressures on black girls, including disproportionate discipline mm -hmm. in school, disparate arrests. Mm -hmm. Talk about why you're angry about what you call a painful adultification bias. I'm glad you said that adultification. I'm not going to say I'm angry. Because um, that leads to the angry black woman syndrome, which I'm not. Oh, um, I'm someone, yeah, I'm someone who points out the ills uh, of what's going on so we can see them and we can spot them and move forward. Um, adultification of young black girls, a lot of times, again, I went to a point, I said that, you know, we are digging so much out while we are the head of the household, uh, while, while we're rising in numbers, head of the household, rising in number as 
the breadwinner of the household. And along the way, sometimes there are young kids in that, in that home that have had to take on responsibilities that they shouldn't have to in helping us move the family forward. Unfortunately, some of our young black girls have not had the opportunity to be just that young black girls because they're helping mom, you know, take care of the kids. They're helping mom, you know, get the kids together so all of us can get out to school at the same time um, and on time, helping with cooking, et cetera. Not having that, that feeling that, that youth and that innocence. Instead, they're growing up too fast, becoming independent and growing up way too fast because they're helping out when the mother needs help or the father needs help or the home needs help. The adultification of our kids. And, you know, everyone should have the opportunity to have a joyous childhood. And it's so interesting. A friend of mine said, um, Frederica Newton, the widow of the late Huey P. Newton of the Black Panther Party, she said, some kids are given fairy tales. Other kids are given nightmares. And that's the part that should change. That's why I'm talking about the adultification. You know, all kids should have fairy tales and have dreams of a better future instead of always having to worry about, oh, what I got to do next? What do I have to do to help out? You know, we all help out. There are things called choice, but this takes it beyond. This is more so you are being uh, a foot soldier helping in the home or helping in the community, you know, losing your childhood to help out to move the ball forward in the home. We need to take a pause in our conversation with April Ryan, celebrating 25 years covering urban issues from the White House, with a new book, Black Women Will Save the World, an anthem. When we're back from a short break, Ryan's Roots in Baltimore. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. April Ryan covers urban issues from the White House press room and has since the Clinton years. When President Trump, during his first month in office, said he had plans to improve inner cities, Ryan pressed for details and things went awry. So we're going to do a lot of work on the inner cities. I have great people lined up to help with the inner cities. Well, when, okay? you say, when you say the inner cities, are you, going to, are you going to include the CBC, Mr. President, in your conversations with your, your urban agenda, your inner city agenda, as well as... Am I going to include Are who? you going to include the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Well, Hispanic I would. Caucus, I tell you what. Do you want to well set up the, the meeting? CBC. Do you want to set up the meeting? No, no, no. I, are they I, friends I'm, of I'm yours? No, get a, set up the I meeting. I know some of them, but I'm sure they Let's go set up right a meeting. I would love to meet with the Black Caucus. I think it's great. The new president was treating Ryan like she worked for him. When we spoke last October, I asked Ryan what went through her mind at that moment. Like I worked for him. Um, it was so much that went through my mind. I didn't work for him. I was a member of the Free and Independent Press. And Sheila, you know this. If I would have said, okay, sure, I will help you um, meet with the CBC. I will set up the meeting. That's not my place, number one. I'm a journalist. And it would look like I'm in the pocket of someone. That is not the case. I've worked too hard to get to where I am for anyone to insinuate that I am close to them and I can work it out. We're planning stories. That is not the case. So for those who didn't know, now you know, it was pretty bad. Um, And you could lose your 
your integrity at the very least, and then your job as one of the most pieces of that. It was not my place to do it. It was sending more of a message that I wasn't a real journalist, mm-hmm. that I'm in with all the black people. That's what that was if you picked up on it. And it was ugly. It was awful. I mean, I come from working class Baltimore, a, a city that I love dearly. You know, um, I still own a home in Baltimore and I'm in the community very much so. And my parents worked hard for me to be where I am and to have something like that knock me off of my game, knock me off of everything, every penny that they they worked for me for, that was not going to happen. Every penny, every dime that they scraped together to make sure that I became what I was. No, that was not going to happen. As you write in the book, and as you just said, you're a Baltimore girl. When did you know you wanted to be a journalist? Oh, early on, Sheila. Early on when I when I attended Morgan State. Um, it was just a matter. It was a progress. It was a, it was a progress in action. Um, it took a minute, <laughs> and I got there. Um, but I'm really excited about the fact that Morgan State and the teachers at Morgan State were one of the pieces to this puzzle to get me to this space. Everyone doesn't get to the White House. And to say I'm the longest serving black woman journalist at the White House is something. Coming out of Baltimore, a city that so many people look at and say, hmm, or watch on the train, oh my goodness, I am a product of that. Not necessarily West Baltimore, Northwest Baltimore, um, Northeast Baltimore. Well, let me I am d- Baltimore through and through. Mm-hmm. And let me drill into that a little bit. I, I, I covered the White House, too, in an earlier era than you for ABC News. So I, I know how a network correspondent gets a seat in the press room. Tell me how you made your way to that seat and how you how kept about that, that seat. How about that? Right, exactly. How did I get there and how did I stay there? You know, um, it's Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of that, you know, that's in those network seats. It's hard to get there. And understanding, I worked uh, a lot of local stations. I broke some news out of Baltimore. And the network that I was working for at the time kept watching me. I was very good. Baltimore's a newbie town. I broke some news out of the NAACP, and I would do a lot of little things around, you know, get stories that no one else would. And not only was I the first with it, but I was accurate, Sheila. Mm -hmm. So they liked me. And I worked for a boutique black radio news company for 20-some-odd years, and I moved over to the grill and opened up their news product for them. So sometimes it's not just who you know gets in the door, but it's what you know that keeps you there. So for me, it was who I knew and what I knew, and I'm still there 25 years later. This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with April Ryan, Washington Bureau Chief for the GRIO Current Affairs site. We're talking about her new book, Black Women Will Save the World, an anthem. You emphasize repeatedly that if you were not there to ask the questions you ask, they would not get asked. In your view, what do bigger news organizations fail to pay attention to? I'm going to say this, um, you know, larger networks, news organizations take a broader view, not just of the United States, but the world. And when we do that, sometimes you forget 
the minutia. And the minutia is that crescendo moment, unfortunately, when it happens. Um, you know, for black media, we talk about, and we have been talking about, the water not safe to drink for decades before mainstream media got a hold of it. It takes that crescendo moment. We've been talking about uh, policing issues and lynchings way before mainstream media talked about it. And when they do, it's a crescendo moment. You see a Rodney King or you see a Trayvon or you see an Emmett Till. We've been talking about that for a long time. And and speaking of Emmett Till, we now have the Emmett Till anti-lynching law that's in effect. And we've been talking about it before Emmett Till, during Emmett Till, um, up through this moment. Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, uh, Walter Scott, Mike Brown, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, the list goes on. And that's the thing, you know, if there could be some of these moments to help, it could change a lot of the dynamic um, for a lot of these underserved communities, I believe. I mean, we hear about the black farmers when there's a crescendo moment. They're screaming now they need money um, because it was not uh, put into uh, the budget by Republicans, the president's um, rescue money, uh, and now they're saying we need help. You know, Republicans were saying it was reparations. But those are the stories that affect average people, average people who just happen to be black and still are under these stats, the highest numbers of negatives in almost every category. You wrap up the book with eight takeaways, sort of a to-do list for people who want black women to succeed. And I want to I want to delve into the second one because it gets it at something that was troubling me as I read the book. It is the prescription, Stop Discounting Black Pain and Suffering. Mm. You, you write, stop either overlooking our very existence or perceiving us as superhuman, close quote. But throughout right. the book, right. throughout the book, April, you point to and rejoice in what you call the superpowers right. of black women, like quote, transforming hardship into healing and pain into progress, close quote, like sisterhood. So how do I reconcile those two views? Don't consider us superhuman, but know that that we have superpowers. We do have superpowers. But when I say don't think of us as superhuman, do you realize a lot of times black women, and studies have shown this, and I write about it in the book, doctors overlook us, overlook our pain because they think we're superhuman. We don't feel the pain that we say we feel. We have been used as guinea pigs in studies. We are perceived as someone or, or some person or a group that is unfeeling, but we can still move through without the pain. We do not have uh, Teflon skin. We have kryptonite. Yes, we see kryptonite every day, but we still keep moving. And that's part of the piece. We hurt too. We have to be tough to be able to navigate, to hold communities and families on our back and to be able to navigate, but we are still human. And that's the piece that I'm talking about, the humanity of it all. Sheila, we are not looked at as vulnerable. Society does not look at view us as vulnerable or the standard of beauty. My book cover shows us as the standard of beauty and vulnerable, but still with our eyes on the prize. And that's the piece I hope that you take away from that part. We are superhuman, but yet we are human. It's wonderful to talk to you, April. Thank you. Oh, 
Oh, thank you, Sheila. Thank you so much. April Ryan has covered urban issues as a White House reporter for 25 years. Her fourth book is Black Women Will Save the World, an anthem. We spoke in October. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Join us again tomorrow.